0: Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in the series, A Life That Pleases God. As we walk through Hebrews 11, we see examples of those people who demonstrated what faith is. What is faith? Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. It has been said, the biggest idol individuals have the hardest time letting go of is ourselves. As we see from God's Word today, faith doesn't have any idols. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Faith Has No Idols.
1: I like you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We've been studying through this series on faith for quite a few weeks now. As you can tell, we're not racing through Hebrews 11. We'll be here for a little while. Uh, But the encouraging thing is it's a fun journey of faith. Hebrews 11.1 began with the definition of faith, you know, that it's the substance or the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence or conviction of things not seen. When we exhibit faith, it's that we have an assurance, something that we're confident of, of a reality beyond this reality, a reality which cannot be seen, but we're convinced that it's real, that heaven is just as real to us as believers as this room is to us here today. And that is an assurance or a conviction of things not seen, that we have formed a reasonable conclusion about God and about eternity based upon the evidence God has given to us, the evidence out in the universe, the evidence here on earth, the evidence from God's word, and we can form a reasonable conclusion that God exists and he rewards those who diligently seek him. And then the rest of the Hebrews 11, as you can tell, God doesn't just define faith and let us move on. He's gonna make us stare at what it looks like. He's gonna give us on the job training with several individuals of faith. He's gonna show us what faith looks like live day in, day out. He's not gonna let us go home and say, yeah, I've got that whole assurance, confidence, conviction thing down pat, that's me all the way. He's gonna make us look at what people look like who live by faith. I was at a museum once I forget which museum it was. One of these kind of interactive museums. Uh, you better make sure when you go to a museum that it's interactive first before you start climbing on the bears and the exhibits. This is one of those interactive type museums, and it had a pitching like an area where you can pitch the ball. It had a radar gun set up. Had like a cardboard cutout of some major league pitcher, probably Nolan Ryan at that time or something, and it encouraged you to throw like the big leaguers. And I thought. I'm not, I'm not trained to be a pitcher, but I'm going to give this a try. And I didn't do the full pitcher windup thing or anything, but I thought I'm just going to throw it hard. And so I threw that baseball down there because this exhibit is inviting me to compare myself to these major league hurlers. And so I threw that baseball down and the radar thing came up and I thought it was broken (laughs) because it said something like 36 mile an hour. If you don't know anything about baseball, that's really slow. In fact, at 40 mile an hour, that's considered a trick pitch. It's so slow that it's going to fool the batters. And so that's what I, th- I thought, well, that's got to be wrong. So I threw it again. And sure enough, I really was that bad. There's a reason I never made a career out of it. And so the, the purpose of this exhibit was not to show off how great Heath really is at throwing. The purpose of the exhibit is to say these guys who throw upwards of 100 mile an hour, you're not there. Um, If you're going to be like that, if you're gonna pitch in the major leagues, you're gonna have to throw a lot faster. And to to a degree, when we look at these examples of faith in the Bible, we're not supposed to look at these examples of faith and feel boastful and proud. We're not supposed to look at these examples of faith and say, yeah, I've got all of this. This is me, me, me. Me? Wow, I'm really I'm really killing this faith thing. We're supposed to look at these exhibits of faith and see ordinary men and women of God that God used, but we're to look at these evidences of faith, these examples, and they're supposed to challenge us to live in a similar way of faith. That's the reason God gives these examples. We are to compare ourselves in that way to see if we're living by faith or not, or if we're fooling ourselves that we're walking and living by faith. So the example today, we return again to the, person of Abraham. Hebrews 11, it'll be uh, Hebrews 11 beginning in verse 17. We're going to see number one, that faith is tested. If you say you have faith, God's going to say, all right, let's have a look. Verse 17 begins this way. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested... Offered up Isaac. And so God's referring to Abraham, his faith, and it says that he's tested. Clearly, this is referring back to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, first couple of verses says, and after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he says, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. God is pointing this whom you love part out to show us what this test is going to be. It's going to be a test of love. Who do you love more? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now often, unbelievers will look at this and they'll say, what a cruel, awful, wicked God. He wants to kill people and burn them. That's not God's intention here. In fact, what does God twice call it here? Once in Genesis and once in Hebrews 11, what does he call it? calls it a test. God is clearly not advocating child sacrifice, something which God soundly condemned in the Old Testament. This is a test. A test means to prove the quality of something. You say this is good? Let's put it to the test. If any of you guys ever have a subscription to my favorite magazine a long time ago was Consumer Reports. And I loved it because they didn't take any advertising, which means they could beat something up and tell you about it. And so you get Consumer Reports and they test it. They put it through all the paces. They're giving it a a hard time. They're trying to put it through the worst possible conditions to see what shakes out. Because every vacuum cleaner claims to be great. Every vacuum cleaner claims to be able to suck the hair off a cat. But they can't all do it, can they? So we don't, I don't recommend that, by the way. Kids, don't try that. But they all say that they're great, but how do you know which vacuums are good? You have to test them. And so God never uses a person until he has tested him greatly, proved the quality of something. Now, if you have a King James Bible, don't get all scared when you read this verse. You say, well, my Bible says that God tempted Abraham. Okay, that's actually not a clear translation. Does God tempt people to sin? He does not. He does not. Uh, let's distinguish between what is the difference between a test and a temptation. A temptation is an enticement to sin. Hey, why don't you do this? It'll be great. It'll make you feel good. God doesn't know what he's talking about. That's a temptation, okay? Uh, God doesn't do that. James 1.13 says, let no one say he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So obviously we're not talking about God enticing Abraham or others to sin. A test, however, is an opportunity to sin. God is not wrong by creating an opportunity. Isn't that what he did in the Garden of Eden? He put, he put a tree where? On the outskirts of the garden? You'd have to go way out of your way to find it? No, God put the tree in the middle of the garden. You're gonna pass by this every day, everywhere you go on route to what you're doing. And then God didn't put something in the middle of the garden that they wouldn't want, did he? God didn't put a pile of compost in the middle of the garden and said, do not eat of it lest you die. You and I would be making very fleshly choices. Well, yeah, it stinks. I avoid that. Uh, God put a tree with something beautiful, something they desire, something that would be good to eat. But that is not a temptation. It is a test. Will you choose me over the things of this world? Will you trust God that when all of your senses are saying, this is good for me, that I'm going to trust God when God says, this is not good for me? That is a test. Will you choose God over things? Will you choose God, uh, uh, love God more than the things of this world? A test uh, in fact, the same word for test is used in 1 Samuel 17:39. It's the same Hebrew word what, describing what David did with Saul's armor and weaponry before he went to fight Goliath. You remember that? David didn't just march in with that sling. Uh, first, Saul's like, well, "I can't send a kid into battle without armor," and so he puts his armor and weapons on David. And David's like, "I can't use this," it says, "because I have not tested them." That means I haven't practiced with it. I haven't used it to understand its strengths and its limitations. And so David put it off. That's the term that God uses here. <clears throat> he tested Abraham. He's showing Abraham his limitations. He's putting him through the paces. It's what we do with a, uh, a test drive of a car. Have you ever bought a car and never test drive it, drove it? Most of us know you're going to test drive a car. And when you do, you're not going to drive it, you know, like some sweet little grandma coming to church. You're not gonna go easy on it. When you test drive a car, you're hoping nobody rides with you because of the ridiculous things you're gonna to do to that car. You become, you know, NASCAR. <clears throat> we slam on the accelerator, right? wanna see what it can do. Uh, when you hit the brakes, you're not gently coasting to a stop on a test drive. You're, you're stomping on it, aren't you? Trying to see what can, can it handle well. You're swerving sometimes just trying to see. Can it handle the road? Can it handle the corners? Don't let me test drive your car, by the way. Uh, But you're doing that. When you test drive, you are pushing something beyond what you would normally do because you're trying to see the limitations of that car. Are there any glaring weaknesses? Are there things that I need to know about? And in a test of God, that's what he does with us. God doesn't just let us coast through life in a convenient, predictable way. He's going to test our faith. He's going to push us beyond our normal everyday boundaries. And it's not because God is curious what we can do. Hey, let me see what I can do with Amber here. I'm going to push her hard. It's he's pushing us to reveal to us what our weaknesses are. It reveals things in our life that need to be worked on because when everything is going our way, you and I look like really great Christians, don't we? When people are kind to us, you're really sweet and kind and loving to them, aren't you? When do we find out who you really are? It's when God takes some of that away. Can you still be kind to somebody who's mean to you? That's when we see who you really are. That's a test. Can you love God when he starts taking things that are comfortable away from your life? Will you still worship God? When God takes pieces of your health away, will you still come to church? Will you still read your Bible? Will you pray? Will you give? Will you struggle with the standard even though everything around you is saying you can't trust God, will you trust God anyway? That's the test. Will you trust God over circumstance? Will you trust God over your senses? Well, God doesn't use untested people. He tests every single individual that he's going to use greatly. I don't care if you're Daniel, Abraham, Peter, even Jesus, God tested. Right before his earthly ministry, God sent him into the wilderness and starved him for 40 days and then sent a devil there to say, why don't you eat this bread? Well, James 1, 2 through 3 says, look forward to it yourself, fellow Christians. Count it all joy, my brothers, not if, when you encounter trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, there's our word, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is a word that means that we're able to remain faithful. We remain, we, we keep standing despite what's going against us. We continue to stand. doesn't matter what hits us. Only mature Christians are going to do that. Immature Christians or unbelievers, as soon as there's difficulty, they're going to fall away, aren't they? Oh, is there persecution for God? I'm not gonna follow him. I'm not going to church if there's something I'm gonna lose. So unbelievers and immature believers don't remain steadfast. God wants us to be steadfast, that even though there's difficulty and trial, it's not going to change how I live. Just because you're mean to me doesn't mean I'm gonna be mean back to you. Just because I had a hard day at work doesn't mean I'm gonna come home and kick the dog. I am steadfast. I don't change just because circumstances around me change. I'm still faithful to God, I'm still loving to people, I still give, I still serve, I still am the Christ-like individual that I normally am. And you know some people like that, don't you? Steadfast people, probably people who've walked with God a long time. You know this dear old saint in the church and you know that they're going through ridiculous health struggles. They're not sure how long they're gonna be here and you know they've been in and out of the hospital and they're recovering from surgery and yet you see them here and they have a smile on their face and all they're concerned about is that you're built up and encouraged. They're going through a horrific trial, and yet their thought is always about God and other people. That's steadfastness. And that's what God is trying to produce through us during this time of testing, to show us that you can, like Christ, when you're going to be Christ-like, you can stand up and continue to remain godly despite difficulty. It's what a fellow in World War II did named Desmond Doss. Anybody see Hacksaw Ridge? You know, you have this conscientious objector. He's not going to carry a gun, but he is going to serve his nation. And so he goes into World War II and, and they come up to this battle of Hacksaw Ridge and they're forced to retreat. They've come, come under heavy casualties and they're all pulling back. And for fear of their lives, we're, we're going in a backwards direction. But Desmond knows that I'm an army medic. And just because enemies are shooting at me doesn't mean my job stops. And so he pursues back into the field, coming under heavy fire. You see him grabbing guys and rolling them over into these ditches. He's dragging them back to this ridge. He's lowering them down off this ridge by ropes. And this is a true story. And he saves 75 people that day. He was steadfast. Just because everybody around me is faithless, but no no judgment. I mean, we weren't there, but just because everyone around me is retreating doesn't mean I have to retreat. Just because enemies are shooting at me, just because there's a risk of personal loss does not change the fact that I'm an army medic and I've got a job to do. And so he remained steadfast. His circumstances didn't change him. He lived his life by principle and by faith. Well, this is what a test is supposed to do. We say that we love the Lord, a test is to reveal whether, you know, whether or not We truly love the Lord. We say in faith, I trust in God, but a test is gonna reveal, do you really trust in God? And so God's gonna put weight on that. And for Abraham, his test is going to be a test, like we said, of love. Do you love your son more than God? If we do, we have a problem. If we love anything more than God, we have a term for that, don't we? It's called an idol. And faith, number two, has no idols. Now, I've seen a lot of idols in my time. A lot of times as Americans, we get very insulated from idols. There's not too many places you can go in America and see idols. I mean, as far as like overt idols, like big golden statues and, you know, Buddha type figures. We don't have too many places like that. I've seen them all over though. We were in, uh, when we were in, even in Alaska, we worked with what we call Eskimos. They're called Aleut. And they're Russian Orthodox mixed with some kind of folk religion, and they would always have these icons in their house, these, these idols that they would trust in, brings them good luck. We would go, you know, into China, and we would ha- we'd go into a Buddhist monastery, and we'd see idols there, you know, or we'd go into a Tibetan monastery, and this is from a Tibetan Buddhism monastery here, and you'd see these large gold statues and things, and when we think of the word idol, that's what comes to mind, Right? And I'm not an idolater because I don't have one of those in my living room. I mean, come on, we all think that way. There's nobody here who's probably coming to church saying, you know, I'm an idolater, but I'm going to worship God today. Because we don't have that in our living room. In fact, we'd taken volunteer teams in when we were working with Tibetans. And we took volunteers to the monastery there in Shangri-La. And we had some American church members who were so offended at that They were so offended at this idol. They refused even to walk in through those doors. Even if it meant to share the gospel with somebody who's living in darkness, they would not do it. They were so put out, so offended, couldn't even believe that we brought them to this place where we would share the gospel with people. And I think it's interesting. We get so offended at this kind of idol, but are there other kind of idols? Not overt idols like this that are on the outside, but they're idols of our heart. We sure do things that we love more than God. We get very offended at this kind of idol, but we don't tend to get very offended at the idols of our heart, the invisible ones, the ones that people cannot see, but they exist, don't they? An idol is simply something that we worship and something that we serve. You do a study on idolatry. It's, it, has, it has the or, or even worship. It has the idea of something that we serve. Romans 12, one and 2 talks about, you know, uh, brethren, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Obviously, we're talking about something that we're worshiping, something that is a God in our life. He says, which is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or some of your translations may say your reasonable act of worship. It is a reasonable response to the gospel. And But this word worship has the idea of that which we serve. We serve God. And There are other places in the Bible we can go to where God recognizes that idols, something that we love, something that we serve with our life, are things other than just gold statues. Take, for instance, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Earthly, meaning things that belong to this earth. It's temporary. It's going to disappear someday. He says, put to death those things. Don't get caught up, don't get consumed by the things of this world. And he gives us examples, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. These are earthly things. And then what does he say? Which is idolatry. So idolatry is not just that I have graven images at home because honestly, American culture, that's not, real, that's not real big in American culture. You don't go to a lot of people's houses and say, well, that's a lovely idol you have on your shelf there, Jacob. Where did you pick up that idol? You know, we don't see them on people's, in people's houses. But what we have are hidden idols, idols of the heart, things that when push comes to shove, that's what we serve and that's what we love most in life. There are these covert idols, these idols that nobody else sees, but I know that they're there. He gives some examples of things that can commonly be uh, idols in areas of worship in our life, something we love more than God. First things he mentions is sexual immorality. That is the gratification of a God-given drive. And let's say that here, sexuality is not impure. The marriage bed, the Bible says, is undefiled. So as Christians, we're not trying to say that sexuality is evil. In fact, it's a gift that God has given man when it's enjoyed God's way. When we are willing to go outside of God's parameters to gratify those things, now it becomes Immorality and immorality can become an idol that any time that we're willing to satisfy a sexual drive outside of what God has given to us, whether that's cohabiting pornography or any other way that is something where we have gone into and in making that an idol. I love this more than I love God. How do you know? Because you're serving that and not God. You're obeying that drive and not what God says. And Jesus says, if you love me, what will we do? We will keep his commandments. So when we don't keep his commandments, it's because there's something we love more than God. That is an idol. In fact, sexual immorality is commonly tied to idolatry, isn't it? Read through it in the Old Testament, Exodus in chapter 32, verse six. We we read about Israel. They were out in the wilderness. Moses hangs out too far, too long on the mountain and people start getting worried. What are we gonna do? So they said, hey, give me all your gold earrings, all this plunder we got from Egypt and I'm gonna make something really nice for you. And they make this golden calf. And they say, this is the God that has brought you out of Egypt. And then what do they do with this idol that they're worshiping? It says that they rose up the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. They are serving this idol. Sacrificing for this idol. And it says, and then the people sat down to eat and drink They're just gratifying their fleshly desires, and they rose up to play. That doesn't mean they had a cornhole tournament. They're not playing games. This this is referring to group public immorality. Israel, God's chosen people, when their heart becomes for something other than God, we're capable of any kind of sin. When you love anything more than God, it leads to other kinds of sins that God prohibits. And so this is what sexual immorality is. It's a form of idolatry. I want to gratify myself more than I want to please God. He also talks about impurity. It goes beyond the act of the sin itself. And he's talking about the motivations of the heart. Just even enjoying dwelling on something sinful can become an idol of our heart. I've seen some people who they live their entire life dwelling on sinful things. They're bitter at somebody and they'll never let it go. And that anger consumes them. And they begin to serve that anger, serve that bitterness. It's all they can think about. It's all they can talk about. it's just this this impure thinking. I'm dwelling on sin. God says, this this too can be a form of idolatry. It becomes the, the driving motive of my life. Passion. It refers to strong feelings that we have for the creation over the creator. It takes a blessing of God and tempts us to indulge in it. For instance, eating. Is eating a gift of God? Depends on what you're eating, right? <laughs> uh, eating can be a gift of God though, right? It's, a, it's something, it's a beautiful thing. It's a gift. We're gonna, there's gonna be food in heaven. And so it's a gift of God. But what if we indulge in, the, in that eating and we just say, you know what, I'm worth it. <laughs> and we just eat as much as we want or whatever we want at any time that we want. Does that become sin? It sure is on that list of the seven sins that God hates. It's right up there. It's called gluttony. Sleeping is a gift of God, can we indulge in that and create sloth? Friendship is a gift of God, but we can indulge that into homosexuality. I wanna be with men more than I wanna be with women anymore. That's taking a gift of God and we are indulging that. We are going all in, we're releasing any kind of restraint in our life. Evil desire is a little bit different, whereas the passion is getting way too excited about some earthly thing and indulging in it exercising no self-control. Evil desire is we want something because it's wrong. We enjoy it because it's taboo, because it's illegal, because it's sinful, and we find some enjoyment in that. It's why some people find this real thrill from adultery because it's, it's sin. But that makes it more exciting to them. That arises from something called evil desire, that I love to live in rebellion against God and his standards. And then he talks about covetousness. Now grammatically Colossians 3:5 covetousness is specifically modified by this idolatry. He specifically calls out covetousness as idolatry. What is covetousness? Covetousness is when you long for something. It's when we mistake the purpose of our life, to be the acquisition of things. It's the lust of the eyes. I must acquire things to myself. I need to control a lot of things around me and in my life. I need to have stuff. It makes me feel secure in and of myself. Makes me feel self-sufficient. This is what covetousness is. And by the way, that's a divine attribute. That's what makes covetousness sinful. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the Bible says. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. I don't have to own a lot of stuff, but this desire to own more and more and more, to live, to spend every penny I make and even live beyond what I make, Bible calls that specifically idolatry. You love things. You've gotten confused. You think the purpose of your life here on earth is not just to sustain your body so you can worship God. You've gotten confused and you think the purpose of your life is to acquire stuff to make more money so you can get a bigger house, to make more money so you can have a nicer car, to make more money so you can have better clothes and take better vacations. You think that's the purpose of your life. God says that's idolatry. You are worshiping, it's it's honestly a form of self-worship. Covetousness is, I deserve to have these things. The rallying cry of the idolater is, I'm worth it. But you see that a lot online anymore don't you even some christians sometimes will be like i'm worth it i'm worth it i'm worth it you're worth it you should have this you deserve this by the way worth is the is the root concept in in a lot of the terms of of worship it's worship it's ascribing worth to god but when we're covetousness we're ascribing worth not to god any longer but but to ourselves and this is why god sees it as Sinful, And so these are some of the idols of our heart that we we can't hang on to these things that we love more than God, where we value ourselves and our comfort even more than God. And so now that we have more of a biblical understanding of what idolatry is and understand that each one of us have things that are uh, idols in our life, idols of our heart, let's look and see what Abraham's temptation to sin, what was his temptation to an idol? I think we all know, but let's go ahead and read it. Hebrews 11, verse 17 and 18, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac, your offspring will be named. The Bible specifically mentions Isaac here. This is Abraham's temptation. Abraham was never too concerned with money. Remember when he had the opportunity, he didn't move into Sodom with Lot. He lived in tents. He's not so concerned about earthly wealth. That's not his idol. But something he didn't have that a lot of other people had that he desired more than anything else in life was a son. And God withheld that from him most of his life. And then God finally, he's like 75 years old, God makes him a promise you're going to have a son. Did God give it right away? No. He makes him wait. About 100 years old, this miracle child is born. And the Bible says that this, it's through this child that the rest of the world will be blessed. Through this child, I'm going to fulfill my covenant. Through this child, it's going, to be, it's going to create a race of people who are going to be like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. All of your future hopes and dreams and desires, your legacy is all wrapped up in this one individual, individual sing, singular individual whose name is Isaac. And now I'm asking you to give him back. Would that be hard for you? It'd be hard for any of us. But this is his temptation. Will you love your family more than God? Can family be an idol? Oh, I know that's a hard one, especially around here. I've never seen such more tight-knit families than right here in this region here. And that's a commendable thing. That's a good thing. You should love your family. I wish more of America was as dedicated to their families as y'all are. But can we ever get to a place where family becomes more important than God? Oh, we can, can't we? Where, my, where serving my family is more important than serving God. Where dedication to my family causes me not to be committed to God any longer. My giving and my helping of my family causes me longer, longer to give to God. My serving of my family, my time with my family, I no longer have time for God. Family can become an idol, and God recognized that, and this is the very area that God tests Abraham. Will this guy become an idol And while family should be the top priority of your life outside of God, God will never let family get into into a higher position in our heart than him. In fact, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 37. He who loves his father or mother, which we should do, right? Most of you. He who loves his father or mother more than me, what does Jesus say? Is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When two affections collide, one has, the lesser has to give way to the greater. And in this case, God says, if there's ever a tug of war between your family and Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ wins. And that's hard. Because if you're like me, there's nothing more important to me than my family, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my kids. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them except deny God. God has to have a higher place for us. In fact, in a, in a parallel passage, Jesus says, if you don't hate your own father and mother, by comparison, it, you know there should be such a giant gap between our devotion to God and even our family. That's pretty serious. But if we don't put God in the very top spot of our heart, it's because we simply don't understand who God is. You don't understand how valuable God is. You don't understand his worth. Because when you understand who God is, he will be in the chief and top spot of our life. We will prioritize him. He said, Jesus says, but those who don't, those who put family above me, he says, is not worthy of me. That you cannot make Jesus your Lord, the chief of your life, and be saved. You, they go together. Jesus, remember Romans 10, nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, top spot in my life, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's not just about knowing who God is, It's not about praying a prayer. It's about giving Jesus the rightful place in your heart and life. He is in my top spot. There are no idols. I will have no other gods before you. And whether they're covert, they're out there and they're visible golden statues in my yard or even overt idols of my heart, whether that's my family, my career or things. There's a book out there that if you wanna read it, I highly recommend it by a fellow named G.K. Beale, a professor at RTS in Dallas. And it's called, we become what we worship and I'll save you the time or at least maybe, or maybe just lure you in with a little bit of interest here. But the two main concepts of this book are this, we all worship something or someone. Is that a fair statement? I mean, the great prophet Bob Dylan even said that, right? We all serve somebody. We all serve, we all worship. We serve something in our life. Humans, we are meant to serve, to give our lives for the purpose of a cause or a person we all serve someone. And then the second concept is this. We are slowly being transformed into the thing or the person that we worship. We are slowly being transformed into the person or the thing that we worship. I mean, think about this. Uh, Don't stone me here. Okay, Mike. Mike's wearing a University of Kentucky shirt here, and I can tell he's a fan, okay? I'm not talking about just people who enjoy University of Kentucky. You go, I see a lot of blue in the sanctuaries. Don't throw rocks at me, but you guys who like University of Kentucky, you know who the super fans are, like the crazy ones. They're the weird ones, the guys that paint their chest and their face, and they're just, they're, they're a different breed of human. They don't just enjoy or follow University of Kentucky. That becomes their life, right? Is that fair? There are some people like that, that they worship at the altar, of the University of Kentucky. They go to Rupp Arena Baptist Church or at Sister Church, Kroger Field Baptist Church. You've seen those guys. And they will drive hours. They will spend money to get in the door. And if you look at them, they're not wearing a Duke Blue Devil T-shirt. They wouldn't buy it on clearance. They wouldn't buy, wear it if you gave it to them. They're wearing their colors, okay? They're being transformed into the image of the University of Kentucky. And if you hear them talk, what do they talk about? You're talking about Kentucky, aren't they? That's all they can talk about. In fact, they evangelize. They're evangelists. They're trying to convince you why you, even though you're from Iowa, you still, you don't think y'all tried to convert me? They're Y'all are evangelists. You're trying to convince me. I know you're from Iowa, but now that you're in Kentucky, you really need to wear blue. And so with that which we worship, we are slowly being transformed into that which we worship. We spend money on it. We spend time on it. We sacrifice for it. If a UK game is on and my child is getting married, you've got some praying to do. <laughs> you sacrifice to get there. Like you're going to skip other things to be there, which shows what is the greater priority in our life. You evangelize. You talk about. And so that we all worship something. And it slowly transforms us into that which we worship. And so we've got to be very careful. What are we worshiping today? You can tell what you worship. I'm not going to listen to what you say. Look at your life. Where do you spend your time? What is your greatest allegiance? When this comes into conflict with this, who wins? Where do you spend your money? What do you talk about? These are the things that give evidence of that which we truly worship. And faith has no idols. Number three, we're gonna see here that faith has a high view of God. This is what leads us to worship God over idols. Now, we understand that what God asked of Abraham is highly unusual. I'm so glad that it's not in the New Testament that we need to offer our children as a burnt offering. That would be a real challenge for church growth, I'm telling you. But we're going to see here, Hebrews 11, verse 19, it reveals why Abraham exercised the faith that he did. It gives us a sort of a window to his soul. It says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, as we've said before, our faith is in accordance to our theology. When I say theology, I don't want you to sit, think of a seminary class where you're sitting down and you're taking a theological course about God. When I say theology, your theology is your understanding of who God is. It's what you believe to be true about God. It's what you be, believe to be true about his nature and character, whether you think he's good or evil, whether you think he's mighty or weak, whether you think he's sovereign or that his will must give way to the whims of man and, and circumstance. That's theology. That's theology. It's also what you believe that God has done. You believe maybe that God created the universe or that he is active in the hearts and lives of men today. That's your theology. It's what you believe to be true about God. And that's the most important thing about a human being. It's not what you make. It's not what family you're from. It's what you believe to be true about God. And what you believe to be true about God will determine what kind of faith you exercise and whether or not you have idols in your life. Abraham had a very high view of God. It says that he considered God was able. This is that Greek word, legitsomai. We get the word logic from it. He reasoned something about God, that God is able. It's revealing to us a little bit of the theology of Abraham. He had a very high view of God. God is able. God is able, he reasoned, to do things I've never even seen before. He reasoned that God is able to raise somebody from the dead, that God is able. His trust is in what God can do, not what man can do. The reason he believed that God was able to raise somebody from the dead was not because he's seen it before. It's not because he himself could do it. It's because his view of God was so high. He had no problem putting his trust in God because I believe that he could raise him from the dead. Have you seen it, Abraham? No, but I believe that God can. And that's what faith is. When we exercise faith, we're trusting in what God can do. When we sin, we're doing the opposite. We're not trusting God. We don't believe God. We doubt God. It's what Satan did with Eve in the garden in Genesis 3:5. You remember? He's telling Eve, you know, in the day that you eat of it, God knows that you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. His, his thought was, God is withholding something good from you. Why trust God? And Eve's knowledge of God, ad- admittedly, would be very limited at that time. It's not like they've been walking with God for a long time. And because of that, her view of God was evidently low. She wasn't gonna trust God. She's gonna trust a talking snake. That's, that's where it came down to. She's gonna trust this talking snake in the trees rather than to trust and rest in what, who God is. That's when we sin. We sin when we doubt God. And it's because our view of God is quite low and our view of ourselves typically is quite high. Well, did Abraham have any reason to doubt God's goodness here? I I would say circumstantially there are things that would cause uh, any normal person uh, to begin to doubt God. Think about it. God let him go his whole life without a child. And then all of a sudden God promises a child, won't even give it to me right away. Makes me wait until I'm a hundred. Bible described his body as good as dead, remember? And God made him wait. And now that he finally has this child, this reason for laughter... Now God says, I want you to, I want to take him away from you. Not only that, but I want you to be the reason he exits this world. I want you to take a knife and a torch. I want you to kill this boy, and I want you to burn his body. Would that give you any cause to doubt the goodness of God? Absolutely. But this is the faith. His faith was such that when God asked me to do something that seems self-destructive, when God asked me to do something that seems against what everybody else in the world would do, what everybody else in the world thinks is right, I'm going to trust God that his way is right. Even if nobody else believes it, nobody else does it. And it even seems like if I do it, it's going to destroy my life. I'm going to trust God anyway. That was Abraham's faith. He had a very high view of God. It was Charles Spurgeon, who said, God is too good to be unkind, he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, talk about the hand of God, it's that which he does, when you cannot trace his hand, his works, you don't understand what God is doing in your life, why he's doing it, where he's going. When you cannot trace his hand, he says, we must trust his heart. You know what he's saying? He's saying your theology is what's going to get you through these times, your theology is what's going to cause you to live by faith what you know to be true of God. So again, don't tell me that theology is not practical. Your view of God shapes every decision that you make in life, whether he is good or whether he's not. And so when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. We must lean on what we know to be true of God. And because if we don't, we have idols in our life. When I refuse to trust in God and I love something more than him, I trust something else more than him, that's an idol in my life and faith has no idols. Well, idolatry is revealed when God asks us to give something up. Now, in this particular case, God has asked Abraham to give up his most precious thing in the world. Like I said, he, did, he wasn't terribly interested in money. He wasn't interested in fame. He didn't join Sodom as Lot did. But he did love this, this son right here. And God is asking him to give it up. That's the truest test of our love for God and whether or not we have an idol in our life if God asks us to give something up for the sake of obeying God. When you obey God, does that ever cost you anything? It absolutely does. You're obeying God just by being here. God says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Did you have to give something up to get here to church today? You absolutely did. You know that you could be doing something else right now. I'm not encouraging it. You don't need to be here. You could be out on the lake with a, in a boat. You could be out on the porch grilling in your pajamas. You could be watching sports on TV. You could be over, you know, watching the the Reds play. Are they playing this afternoon? Uh, You could watch the Reds playing. You could do so many things, but you chose not to do that. You gave that up to be here. When you put money in that tithe envelope and you stick it in the box, is that a sacrifice? Could you have used that money somewhere else? You can probably think of 150 ways you could use that. When you serve and you give, you could be sitting comfortably here in your pew, but you're going to go down there like so many are today, and you could be wrangling children. You could be changing dirty diapers, but you're up here where it smells nice. They're sacrificing something to serve God because that's important to them, but they're giving something up. That's when you know you love God, is that you're willing to give something up for him that there's no idol in our life. And so every time God calls us to obedience, it's always calling us to give something up for his sake. My question is, is there anything in your life that if God, you knew that to be obedient to God, you had to give something up, would you be slow to do it? Would you say no to that? Is there anything in your life that you would say no to with God? God, you can have this, but not this. I'm gonna hold on to this. Is there anything in your life that if God were to take it away, it would cause you to falter in your walk with God? If so, that's your idol. What if God took away your mate? Would you still be able to follow God? Would you still trust Him? What if God took your child? What if God took your son, your only son? Would you still follow God? Would you be steadfast? Would you still come to church? Would you think twice before you wrote a check out to God if God took your child? If so, that's our idol. What if in the serving of God, God asked for us to give up our house? Maybe we come to a place where we realize my house is too big, it's costing me too much money, it's taking too much time out of my life and I have no time to serve God or others. I think God wants me to give this up. Would you do it? Or your house is so beautiful, but would you allow people into that house? Children might come in and break things. Would you do that? Allow people in? What if God asked you to give up your career? That's something that you love. You say, but I have to make money. But do we have to make money that way? What if my career is the very thing getting in the way between my relationship with my wife and my kids and God? And we come under conviction that maybe this is something God wants me to change. Could you give that up? You see, there's a whole number of things that we could give as examples, but if there's anything in our life that we're not willing to give back to God for the sake of obeying him, friends, we have revealed something in our heart that we trust more than God, something in our heart that we love more than God, and that has become a covert idol, something that's hidden, something that's invisible to others. And that now becomes our test because faith has no idols. Well, Abraham's going to give it up. Genesis chapter 22, verse 3 says, Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son Boy, what does that remind you of? You have a father with his only son, his son that he loves, and, he's about, and he knows that son is about to be killed. And before he does that, he's going to carry this wood, the instrument of his destruction. He's going to carry it to the place of his execution. Sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they both, it says they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he says, here I am, my son. He says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, I don't know how you as a father can read that and not have a bit of a tear in your eye. Can you imagine God asking you to take your child? And your child really isn't fully aware of what is about to take place. And they're asking you, hey, I'm all for this serving God business and I know that we're going to do an offering, but where's the lamb? And you alone know full well what's about to happen. In Abraham, in, verse 22, in chapter 22, verse 8, Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. He's saying God's going to provide a lamb. Now, there's some people who would like to tell you that, that Abraham just knew that God was going to provide a, uh, something in its place. Now, we know how this story ends. Abraham raises the knife, And right before he kills his son in obedience to God, God says, wait, there's a ram here in the thicket. Take this out and and sacrifice this animal. Is it just that Abraham knew all along that God was going to make him go all the way up to the end and cut it off and stop it? I would argue that no, that isn't true. And here's why. Because we have Hebrews 11. What does Hebrews 11 say that Abraham was confident about, that God was going to swap him out? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now, I'm not a genius, but to raise something from the dead, doesn't it have to first be dead? God, he was convinced that he was going to go through the process of plunging that dagger into his son and burning his body and that from the ashes, God was able to resurrect his son and be faithful to his covenant promises, not that he'd ever seen it before, but he trusted God that much, that God was able. Abraham was actually going to go through with this and kill his son, believing that God was going to resurrect him or could if he chose to, because he believed that God was gonna be faithful to his promises. And so he trusted God with his own son in something that he had never seen before. In the end, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, his only Son, we have already alluded to the fact that Isaac is a type of Christ and that Abraham he, in this particular story is a symbol of God himself because we know another story in the Bible where you have a father who has an only son whom he loves, who took him to a place of execution, made him carry some wood that would, upon which he would be killed one day. And what's interesting is this place of sacrifice here where Abraham is going to offer up Isaac a thousand years later, what else is going to go up there? A temple. The temple would be built there. And there would be animal sacrifice taking place as a picture of what Christ would do for us one day and in the atonement of man's sins. Fast forward about another thousand years later, what else is going to happen near Mount Moriah? about 700 meters from where that temple was gonna be built would be Golgotha, a place of the skull, a place where Jesus himself would die, a place where, once again, a father, for, to be obedient to his purposes, would take his, the life of his son, his only son, to die in our place. Well, Abraham believed that in sacrificing his son, God was gonna do something he had never seen before, was his faith misplaced? Was not. Hebrews eleven nineteen says, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Figuratively. In other words, God never intended human sacrifice. That's something only a divine father could do, sacrifice his own son. But he's not going to ask that of us. This is figurative. But in his heart, Abraham, in his heart, gave him to God. In his heart, Abraham took his life. And in his heart, God gave him back that Abraham had every intention of following through on this because Abraham had no idols. There was nothing he was going to love more than God. And it was all based upon the fact that he had confidence in who God was, that God was going to give him back, that God can be trusted with the life of his son. Well, you know, there's gonna come a day when someday God's gonna ask us to trust God in that same way. There's gonna be a day when God is gonna take our life. And make no mistake about it, read Psalm chapter 90. God is the author of our birth and our death. God is determining the day of our death. So none of us are cancer victims. You may be a Christian dying of cancer, but that cancer didn't take you. It was God's time. You may die of a heart attack, but that heart attack didn't kill you. You're not a victim of of cosmic time and chance. It was your day. And we're gonna have to trust God with our life. And we're gonna have to trust him like Abraham did with Isaac, that God is able to raise us up from the dead someday and put our faith in him. I wonder if you've done that today. You know, Jesus in John 11 said in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, which we all will, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's right there in the text. Do you believe this? Who cares that this is propositionally true for somebody else? it doesn't become true for you unless you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That God at at his appointed time is going to take your life from this earth. But that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we believe that he is able also to raise us up from the dead. If you don't have that confidence, friend, I wanna encourage you, we can show you how you can have that confidence in God today. You say, well, I don't know what that faith, putting faith in Jesus looks like. I don't know what that would look like to trust in him fully. I think you do. In fact, many of us have done it before. If you've ever had a surgery You've done a similar thing. I've had several surgeries in my lifetime. The first one always weirds you out a little bit. It's odd. You've never done it before. You know, they they take you in and you're hanging out with your family member and they put that weird open back gown on you and a little breezy. And and that's because they're gonna discard it. Sorry, I mean, it's it's scary to think like that, but they're gonna do that and they're gonna see you for who you are. Uh, They're gonna put grandma's shower cap on you. They're gonna put some shapeless socks on your feet. And you're gonna be comforted for a while by your family members, but even then, eventually, are they gonna have to disappear? You don't get to walk into the operating room. And you're gonna be alone with your thoughts, much like we do at death. There can be people accompanying you for a while, but at some point in time, it's gonna be just you and God. And at that operating table, you've got all kinds of crazy thoughts going through your head, you're a little bit nervous, you've never done this before, a little little trepidation. But you go through it anyway because you know that you need help. And so you put your faith and trust in this doctor, in this man, and you allow him to put a mask over your face and to knock you out and you're as good as dead. And you let him do whatever he wants to your body and he's gonna cut you open. That's frightening, isn't it? But he's gonna do that, but you trusted him anyway. And, and then eventually you don't know when you fell asleep and all of a sudden you wake up on the other side and your body's been changed. That's what Jesus is asking us to do with him. Why did you trust in that doctor? It wasn't just random faith. You didn't just select the guy who collects your trash and say, hey, I have a need for some surgery. What are you doing on Tuesday? You put your faith in a guy, a guy where you it's a reasonable faith. You have a previous relationship with that doctor. You talked to him, you saw the degrees on the wall. And so you made a reasonable conclusion that this man could be trusted with my life. That's what God is asking us to do about Jesus. God, no, God isn't gonna lay it out there for you. He's not gonna visit you in a vision at night because that's no longer faith but sight. But what we need to do is look at the, the stars in the universe and say, this is no accident. We need to look at the complexity of human life and say, this is no accident. And we need to look at God's word and see the truthfulness of God's word and form a reasonable conclusion about God that God can be trusted with my life. And even though I've never seen anybody resurrected from the dead before, I'm gonna trust him with my life. If you can do that, friends, you can be saved. Form a reasonable conclusion about God and then just trust him. Put your life in his hands. We do that every day. We do it the moment we get saved. And then we do that for the rest of our life as believers. As we, as we walk by faith, we put our life in his hands. God, you want me to live obediently? I'm gonna trust you with this. You wanna take something from my life? I'm not gonna stop following you. I'm gonna trust you with that. Because there's no idols in my heart. Because you cannot have a life of faith and a life of idolatry. God is our only trust and he is our true and chiefest love in life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today that we have, as we've studied your word, we're we're encountering some really hard things, God, because each one of us have things in our heart and life that vie for our attention with you. Things in our heart and life that wanna guide us away from living fully obediently to you. Each one of us have idols of our heart that you have asked us to get rid of or things that you've asked us to minimize in a place below you somewhere. You didn't ask Isaac, or Abraham to give up Isaac altogether, but you did ask him to be willing. And God, I pray that there would be that same faithful willingness on our part, that if there's something in our life that we have prioritized over you, that we have valued more than you, or God, if there's a sin in our heart and life that we're, we enjoy more than obedience to you, God, would you reveal that idol to our heart today and give us a willingness of heart to give that up to you? to put it in a lesser position behind you that Jesus might be truly preeminent, the central figure in our life. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.
0: From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments.